The book of Galatians is all about the gospel, the good news of the divine gift in Christ. And as we've been in this book this fall, we've seen that this gospel produces a new identity and a new community. We can't have one without the other. The two go hand in hand. To be in Christ is to join the new community of prostitutes and governors, soldiers and tax collectors, high school dropouts and PhDs, addicts and fitness buffs, refugees and homeowners. And it can be this because, as we saw last time that we were together, our prior and continuing differences are stripped of their evaluative freight and therefore of their divisive power, enabling a new kind of unity in Christ. This is Galatians 3.28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So Paul will take up this theme of new community again further on in the letter in chapter 5. But he immediately, as we turn to chapter 4 this morning, returns to the theme of new identity. We'll deal with the first 11 verses today of Galatians 4, and in so doing, we'll cover some familiar terrain. Paul begins this little section with two Greek words that can be translated, this is what I mean, or let me put it like this, signaling to us that he's now covering some similar ground to what he just covered at the end of chapter 3. And that section was about imprisonment under a guardian, the Jewish law, and Christ coming to set us free, and all of us now being children and heirs. And those themes now reappear in verses 1 through 11 of chapter 4, though with some new beauty and some new depth. In this text, Paul clearly echoes and alludes to the Exodus story, signaling to us that the gospel is the great new deliverance. That's what it's about. The gospel is God's new Exodus, God's greater act of deliverance and rescue. So in recounting this act of rescue and deliverance, Paul moves in three parts which we'll look at together enslavement, verses 1 through 3, and we'll see that we're all enslaved, liberation, which which leads to adoption, verses 4 through 7, and temptation, the temptation to turn back to enslavement again, verses 8 through 11. So first, enslavement, and this is fairly clear, and I do encourage you to open up your Bibles if you've got them and to walk through this with me. To talk about rescue implies that we're in bondage. Paul begins with a metaphorical picture of an underage heir in verses 1 and 2. He's just called the Galatians heirs in the preceding verse, 329. This underage heir is no different, he says, than a slave, even though he owns everything. Now, this is a bit of rhetorical exaggeration, because, of course, there is a difference between an underage heir and a slave. But Paul is looking ahead as to how he will apply this metaphor to the Galatians and to himself. The point he wants to make is that the underage heir is subjected to others, but that this subjection is only temporary. It lasts only, verse 2, until the date set by his father. And that word until is featured at key points in chapter 3 as well. And then in verse 3, Paul applies this illustration to himself in the Galatians. In the same way, he says, like this underage heir, we also were for a time enslaved under the elemental principles of the world. This is the word stoikia in the Greek. And it's translated here as elemental principles. It is heavily debated in the scholarship. And Paul doesn't explain it when he uses it here or in Colossians chapter 2. But the prevailing consensus, based on the use of this Greek word in other texts from this era, 
is that stoichia means the physical elements of the world. Earth, water, fire, and air. As such, these elements represent the natural order of the cosmos, an order that is infused with the glory of its creator, as we would affirm, but which, apart from the creator, is unable to deliver. So if you look ahead in verse 9, Paul calls these stoichia weak and worthless. The, the shocking thing about what Paul does here is he includes observance of the Jewish law, specifically Jewish calendar practices. In verse 10, he talks about days and months and seasons and years. He includes those alongside pagan religious practices and says that both categories are beholden to the natural order of the cosmos. cosmos. Both are enslaved. Again, he doesn't explain how. And he doesn't say, and this is important, he doesn't say that pagan religious practice is equivalent to or the same as Jewish calendar observance or the observance of the Jewish law. But he does say clearly that both of these things are under the physical elements. And as such, they're powerless to deliver, to save, to give life, to bring human flourishing. We already saw this in the end of chapter 3, that Paul says the law could not bring life. It couldn't do it. It wasn't able. Outside of God's liberating and life-giving power in Christ, we are enslaved to the things of the world. All of us. Now, prior to coming to Jesus, we are generally blind to this fact in our lives. We think that we're free and doing quite well. Think about Paul before he met Jesus on the Damascus Road. He was a zealous Jew persecuting the church and thinking that he was growing closer to God with every step that he was taking in that direction, in his zeal. He couldn't see. He was blind. He was enslaved. And we generally can't see either. We think that we're doing fine in life. We're living well. We're doing some things really nice for people every once in a while. We are good people. But life outside of Christ is kind of like only knowing the beaches of Maine. And I mean no offense to you Mainers out there. I truly love Maine, but you should ask me sometime about my family's trip to Maine in June of 2009, which was only two months after we'd moved to the Northeast and to Boston. If you grew up in Maine, you think beaches are great. Their beaches are great and wonderful, but you've never been to the Outer Banks, or Destin, or Hawaii, or pretty much just about any other beach in the world. You didn't know that sand could be soft and that the water of the ocean could actually be warm enough to swim in without freezing. But you think you're living it up, and you don't know what you're missing. We're generally blind in our enslavement. We think that we're living the life but we're actually enslaved. But we're not often blind to the effects of our enslavement. One of the surgeons in our community recently told me a story about her colleague who was at retirement age. And this is what he said to her. I can't retire. I was never at home, so my wife and kids hate me and don't want me around. I don't have any hobbies. What else am I going to do? That's seeing the effects of your enslavement. What makes this all the more tricky is that, like this man, we're often enslaved to good things. Our careers, our work, our vocation, our families, our causes. We've just misprioritized them, loving them too much, making them ultimate things that displace God instead of the gifts of God that are meant to be enjoyed through him and the means through which we love him and know his love. Any good thing under the power of sin, under the power of the cosmos, just without God, can lead to enslavement, subjecting us to the weak and worthless elements of the world that cannot save or deliver. 
even, and this is astonishing in Galatians, but even apparently the Jewish law, which in Romans Paul says is holy and righteous and good. Are there good things in your life that are enslaving you because they've been misappropriated, misprioritized? It's like David Foster Wallace said, you will worship something. That's the nature of being human. But if you don't worship a God, and we would, of course, tweak that and say the God, the true God, pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. We're enslaved. But the glory of the gospel is liberation. And this is where Paul shifts and turns in verse 4. Verse 4 is one of those amazing moments, watershed moments in the scriptures. This is one of those but God moments, like we see in Ephesians 2. This is the way things were and there was no hope, but God. This is the future that I was dreading. But God, this was the end of the road, but God. This burden was going to crush me, but God. My life was unraveling, but God. My marriage was failing, but God. The injustices and abuses committed against me were crushing me, but God. Guilt and shame were driving me mad, but God. There is no Christian life, there is no hope, there is no peace, there is no endurance, apart from the reality, but God, because of God, the the divine initiator, the God who can give life to the dead, the God who brings blessing out of curses, the God for whom nothing is impossible. Because of this God, there is always hope. There is always the possibility of peace. There is always the reality of joy. And this is what Paul begins to turn and celebrate as he turns the corner in verses 4 and 5. He says, but when the fullness of time had come, God, did you get to, but God, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Like the underage heir of verses 1 and 2, our subjection was only temporary. The time set by the Father for our liberation has come, Paul said. Now is the day of salvation, he says in 2 Corinthians 6. And it's come through his action in the Son, the one whom we're told back at the beginning of Galatians, gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age. The son became human. That's what he means when he says he was born of a woman. He became human as a Jew. That's what he means when he says he was born under the law. And he became human as a Jew to redeem the Jews from the curse of the law. As we go back to chapter 3, by becoming a curse for us, by going to the cross, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, so that the promised blessing given to Abraham of a worldwide family of faith, united of all those different kinds of people coming together in one family, could come to pass. And so that Jews and Gentiles could share now the adoption as sons. That's what he says. So that we might receive, at the end of verse 5, the adoption as sons. The eternal son became a slave so that slaves might become sons. Let me say something just briefly about maintaining the gender specificity of son in this particular text, which seems like the best thing to do in light of what Paul is wrestling with here. Though, of course, at other times in Scripture, we're, we're, we, we, we read about being sons and daughters, and we read more generally about being children of God. But in this case, talking about sons matters, because in Paul's culture, only sons could share the inheritance. 
Now, we, of course, think that's wrong, and we repudiate that, but that was the culture in which he lived. And so only sons could share as heirs, and that's important to Paul in this text, not just for men, but for men and women. Remember, there is no male and female in Christ, so the son's term includes men and women in the sonship. And also it's important because our sonship is linked directly to the sonship of Jesus, who's related to the Father, as we'll see in just a moment. So this divine gift doesn't simply liberate us from the world and sin, but it liberates us to sonship through adoption. By faith, we are incorporated into and participate in Christ, the Son who is the Son by nature. And so we are made sons by adoption through our union with him, being engrafted into Christ. There is no sonship outside of Jesus. John 1.12, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become what? Children of God. This reality of adoption, of coming into the family and the life of God, is a gift that, that we're given through Christ, and only through Christ. And by participating in Jesus, by being engrafted into Christ, we share in this sonship. And because of this sharing in, we are actually brought into communion in the life of God. We are brought in. I have an old car. Um, it was top of the line 29 years ago in 1990, a Toyota 4Runner. And it's somewhat of my pet project. It's now become the vehicle that my 16-year-old brand new driver drives, which is great because she can't do any damage to it. And her friends at school affectionately call it the beast. Um, I was invited to go out to Gillette Stadium with a group of dads from the school where, where my kids go uh, because one of the dads' companies owns one of the boxes, a really nice place. And I, and I missed the, 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 uh, the black SUV tinted window ride out there. And so I drove out in my 1990 Forerunner. And as we were driving into, and I was driving right, they waited for me in a parking lot, and I'm driving in right behind them. As we're driving through every checkpoint along the way, it's almost like every security officer is about to say, you, you go that way. You don't belong here. You go that way. And I'd roll down my window and note, I'm with that guy in the black SUV with tinted windows, windows right in front of me. And so they ushered me into the kind of sanctuary of New England worship at Gillette Stadium. And I was granted access. I was brought in not because of anything in me, and certainly I didn't belong there, but because of who I was associated with, who I was attached to. And that's what the beauty of the doctrine of adoption says. You are incorporated into Christ, and because you are part of Christ, because you share in Christ, you are brought into the very life of God. There is no higher mountain in Christian thinking and teaching than this. We have communion with God. We are not brought into the sanctuary of New England worship at Gillette Stadium. We are brought into the heavenly throne room by virtue of our adoption into Christ. And we come now to share in a very real way in that re relationship that has existed for all eternity between the Father and the Son, a relationship that is animated by love and by the Spirit. That is our great privilege. And this privilege is sealed and communicated to us. Look at verse 6. By the Holy Spirit, so Paul writes, and because you are sons, verse 6, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. We're brought in to this relationship. Now, despite what is commonly taught, Abba is not most likely a term used by a young child to his father or her father in Aramaic. 
the idea communicated by that teaching of intimacy is right. But this isn't the right way to get there. And that teaching about this being kind of like daddy used by little children has the danger of reducing the eternal father, the one who holds all power and authority and deserves all respect and honor into a cuddly and harmless figure instead of this royal transcendent father. Abba is the Aramaic word for father. Simply that. But it's incredibly significant that it is used here. Paul's signaling something to us in the use of the Aramaic. This is the native tongue of Jesus. This is the language in which Jesus actually prayed to his father. This is the language that Jesus used when he communed with his father all night long. This is how he spoke. And by preservation of that Aramaic term here in this Greek text, we are being told in no uncertain terms that we are brought into that intimate relationship that exists between the Father and the Son. That Jesus, when he was human, he is still human, experienced. We are brought in. The use of Jesus' own tongue is a way of strengthening the claim that is made by the reality of adoption that we now share in that very relationship. And like Jesus, we too are communing with God, crying out to him as Father and relating to him. This is what Richard Hayes, a New Testament scholar, describes as an intensely experienced confirmation of God's gracious embrace. The Spirit communicates all that is true of the Son to you and me. The Spirit animates the relationship that we are now brought into with the Son because we belong to him with the Father. And we cry out to him, Abba, Father. Christ is everything to us. In Christ we have rest, peace, glory, security, belonging, forgiveness, status. Christ is our all. So we cling to him. We rest in him. We seek him. We stand in him. We wake up in him and we go to sleep in him. And this is our security and our rest and our peace. This is contentment and joy and fullness. This is glory and honor and status. It is in Christ, the one in whom we have life, that we are redeemed, that we are liberated, and that we are brought into the very life of God. And here's what this means. This means rest in the midst of chaos. This means fullness in the midst of scarcity. This means contentment in the world of lack. This means peace in the midst of turmoil. This means joy in a world of sorrow. All of this, of course, is paradoxical. It's not normal. But this is the Christian life. This is its reality. This is the way of our people. The people of God because of the gift of our God. There is nothing of peace or life outside of Christ. Sure, there are these kinds of things in the world, but these things, as we experience them, are inherently insecure. It is in Christ that these things are ours permanently, without fail, without change, not varying with the increase or decrease of worldly goods or fortune. In Christ and in Christ alone, we are full and at rest because we are sons alongside the Son. Thanks be to God. But we experience this life in the midst of sorrow. And this is where, this is the final point, this is where we think about temptation. We lose children. 
We experience abuse or injustice or racism. We encounter broken relationships. We are betrayed. We lose the jobs that we love. We encounter cultural pressures daily to conform to the gods of this age. We're pressed and we're pushed. And in all of this, we we are tempted to believe that God is not near, that God does not care, that God does not know, that God cannot provide. But God is our Father, and in Christ we are his children. And we are known and seen and loved and cared for, and even in God's silence, which we experience, we can cry out. Even in our pain, we can cry out. Do you know the one place that Abba is recorded on the lips of Jesus in the New Testament? The Garden of Gethsemane. It's there when Jesus has experienced the full weight and the burdens of the sinful and broken world. When he knows that what he's being asked to do is far beyond his human capacity to do it, that he cries out in Mark 14, Abba, Father, Take this cup from me. Jesus cries out as the Son to the Father in that place of pain and trial and temptation. And then when he hangs on the cross the next day, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He cries out as a son to his Father. The Spirit is at work in him crying out to God in these places of temptation, these places of abandonment, these places of sorrow, these places of pain. That cry, though, is not outside the realm of faith. It's a crying out from the Son to the Father. And this is what the Spirit leads us to do in the midst of temptation, to turn back. Not from doubt, not from putting God in the dock, but in a posture of dependence and need and confusion and frustration. To our Father we cry out in the Spirit of the Son, who cries out within us with groans too deep for words. It's interesting that the other place that Abba, there's only three places, the other place that Abba is used in the New Testament is in Romans 8. And in Romans 8, Paul is saying, look, there's all kinds of junk going on in your life. There's all kinds of struggle and hardship and sorrow. But in the midst of that, God has given us the spirit of his son through which we cry out, Abba, Father, because nothing, Paul says, nothing in the world, neither trouble or persecution or danger or hardship or nakedness or famine and sword, none of those things that you're encountering that call into question your identity as a son or daughter of God, none of those things can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. We are tempted to turn back to the elemental things of the world. We are tempted to embrace the things that are more certain because these things that Paul is writing about, the adoption as sons, the incorporation into Christ, these things are not seen. They're not as tangible as the elemental principles of the world. They're not as readily accessible in some ways. They're invisible. So Paul says we walk not by sight, but we walk by what? We walk by faith. We we cling not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, because the things that are seen are temporary, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Now we know that Paul doesn't mean a material, spiritual dualism. We, of course, believe that the material world is infused with the reality of God. But what Paul is saying is that world outside of a transcendent creator, that world is passing away, yet we're tempted to grab it. I said this was a recapitulation of the Exodus story. What happens in Exodus after they're redeemed? After, they're, the, the, after God works on their behalf, after the sea is parted, they, they enter into the wilderness, and immediately, what do they want to do? They want to go back to enslavement. 
They want to return to Egypt because the meat pots and the full, the, the full loaves of bread are there. And that's what they would prefer, things that they can grab onto and hold onto. They want to walk by sight because walking by faith in the wilderness is not the easiest journey to take, but it's the only journey of life. And so in the midst of our temptations, and Paul says you're tempted to turn back to the law, you're tempted to be enslaved again, you're tempted to grab onto a system of religion that you think you can manipulate and control because people around you say it's important. Don't go down that path, he says, because you know God. And then he says in verse 9, and this is beautiful, rather you have been known by God. In Christ you are known by God. This God who acted and moved and worked in the Son coming into the world. And he knows you. He loves you. He sees you. He pronounces over you, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. He cares for you. He understands your needs. And he is near to you. Don't turn back, Paul says. And that strong warning at the end of our section, he says, I fear that somehow I have labored over you in vain. Don't do it. Rather sit and rest in this way of faith that God knows you and holds you and that you, because you are his own, know his voice. Rest in this new identity. Rejoice in this liberation. Enjoy your freedom, and cry out to him in the midst of your despair and heartache and difficulty. Abba, Father. The Psalms say, pour out your hearts before him. This is what healthy sons and daughters do. As any parent in this room can attest, they pour out their hearts to their parents. They always want to tell you what's on their mind. And it's in that telling, even in the lament of that telling, that this relationship is deepened and communicated more fully and richly. So know that you are a son and an heir. And nothing that you're walking through in this world can take that away from you. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, you own all things are yours because you belong to this son and you belong to this father. So remain in that freedom that Christ has won for you. And embrace this identity as a son or daughter that God has pronounced over you and given you as his great gift. Let's pray.